Good morning, Seven Mile Road. Today marks the 12th Sunday since we've been able to gather together as the people of God. Now let's continue to be steadfast and faithful during this unprecedented time. I know it can be easy to grow weary right now, but Romans 12 offers us a brief and memorable exhortation for us in this time. I would encourage you to commit this to memory. Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. So let's pray now together as we look at God's word this morning. Father, thank you that your word offers us a timely exhortation, that we have every reason to rejoice in hope because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, I pray right now as we are experiencing tribulation, as we are enduring this global pandemic, I pray that you would give us the gift of patience. And God, would you also stir us to be a people of prayer, bringing our anxieties, bringing our requests to you. We love you and trust you. Help us now as we look at your word to see all that you would have for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Do you remember Roald Dahl's classic story, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Perhaps you've read the book or seen the Gene Wilder movie adaptation. I don't recommend the Johnny Depp one. And at the end, after Charlie Bucket proves that he's worthy of inheriting the factory, of taking care of the Oompa Loompas and preserving the Wonka legacy, Wonka looks at Charlie and says, now don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he ever wanted. And then Charlie asks, what happened to that man? Mr. Wonka replies, he lived happily ever after. See, in a moment, a poor kid's life is turned upside down, given wealth and prosperity and all the chocolate and candy he could ever want. And while it's a touching scene, there is a subtle lie being told. And it goes something like this. In order to be content, I need to get everything I've ever wanted. And it's not just this story, it's everywhere. There's a spirit of discontentment that permeates our society. You'll hear it in our songs. You see it in our movies and our TV shows. You'll read it in books and blogs. You can't escape it on social media. It's everywhere. And the reason it's everywhere all throughout our society, it's because discontentment is latent in every single human heart. And you and I are no exceptions. In today's passage, Paul teaches us the secret of contentment. In Philippians 4, 10 through 13, we're gonna learn three things about contentment. First, we learn that contentment is uh, independent of circumstances. Second, we learn that contentment is learned over time. And finally, we'll see that contentment is grounded in Christ. So contentment is independent of circumstances, it's learned over time, and finally, it's grounded in Christ. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 to see that contentment is independent of our circumstances. Look with me at verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now let's stop right there. Remember, the book of Philippians at its core is a thank you letter to the church at Philippi for their generosity and support of Paul's ministry over the years. And also remember, Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. And at this time in the Roman Empire, every prisoner was dependent on outside support for their daily needs. 
They didn't provide meals. They didn't provide what you needed to live. And so you had to have other people make that provision for you. And Epaphroditus, a young Philippian who had faithfully served alongside Paul, has brought a financial gift from the church at Philippi as they continue in their support of Paul's ministry. And in verse 10, Paul expresses his joy and gratitude for their gift. He says that they have revived their concern for him. Apparently, there had been some circumstances hindering the Philippian church from giving as they once had. Now, we don't know exactly the details that hindered their giving. Paul simply says, you had no opportunity. But we do get a bit more information in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-2. through 2. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, Philippi was located in Macedonia. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul says that they experienced poverty and affliction, yet their abundance of joy would not be hindered. And now they had opportunity again, and their giving had been revived. That Greek word for revived contains a powerful illustration. It's a word that means to blossom again. Like a perennial flower that blossoms in the spring after winter, so this church was able to send another gift to Paul to revive and blossom again and show their love and support of him. Then Paul adds in verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See, Paul is always the teacher. Even though he's writing a thank you letter, he uses this situation as an opportunity to teach what he's learned about being content. He's grateful for the gift. He's going to put it to good use. And at the same time, Paul has learned the hard lessons of contentment. And he's saying if they had been unable to send their financial gift, he would still be content. Did you see that in the text? In receiving the gift, or in the absence of gift, whatever the situation, Paul says, I have learned to be content. So we need to stop right there and define contentment. What is contentment? Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, defined it this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, if that Puritan language is hard to digest, Pastor Eric Raymond over at Redeemer Fellowship in Watertown has written an excellent book called Chasing Contentment. I highly recommend that you read it. He provides a modernized version of Burroughs' definition, a little more simple, and he says it like this. Contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. Notice, neither of these definitions mention circumstance. Why? Because the Christian definition of contentment has to take Paul's words seriously. Because Paul says, in whatever situation, which means regardless of circumstance. Now that is a staggering phrase. It should cause pause in us. Paul is saying, I have learned to be content in prison. I have learned to be content when we were sitting at Lydia's house watching a new church 
be born, both in the depths of despair and both at the height of joy, I have learned to be content in whatever situation. In fact, if Paul were living right now in our time, he would say, I have learned to be content, yes, even during the COVID-19 global pandemic. Whatever the situation, pandemics aren't excluded. That's why contentment is different than happiness. See, happiness is external. It's built on circumstances. Happiness is dependent on situations, but contentment is different. Contentment is inward. It's independent of our circumstances. It's why you can be unhappy with your circumstances, yet content with your situation. Contentment says, I may not be getting all that I want, but that's okay because in Christ, I have all that I need. Now, how do we know that Paul believes that? Well, just look at what he said a few paragraphs ago. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen, nothing matters more to Paul than knowing and loving Jesus and being known and loved by him. He defines his needs by Christ. See, when we elevate wants to needs, what we're doing there is we're making a category mistake. You know what a category mistake is? That's like saying the number two is blue. And when you hear that sentence, it, it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's confusing because it's making a category mistake. It's confusing the category of colors with the category of numbers. They are different categories, which is why the sentence doesn't make sense. And that's what's happening at the level of our souls when we confuse needs and wants. They can feel like the same thing, but they're not. They're different categories. Wants are nice to have. They're enjoyable, but they are not needs. Having circumstances go our way is great, but it's not our greatest need. Our greatest need, yours and mine, is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection so that we gain Christ and overcome death. If you are a Christian, the only situation that could ever legitimately keep you from being content has been forever and irrevocably settled. It's settled in Christ, and because it is settled, you can be settled, I can be settled, and we can start to live with that inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. So friends, what wants in your life have been elevated to the place of need, robbing you of your contentment? What situations and circumstances are you facing right now 
that have blinded you from seeing that in Christ your greatest needs have been met. Now we need to answer these questions if we're going to see that contentment is independent of circumstances. Those questions don't come easy. We'll actually have to slow down and spend time thinking about where we've elevated once to needs. Now look with me at verse 12 to see that contentment is learned over time. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In verse 12, Paul says, I have learned contentment. He says it earlier in another verse as well, and he tells us how he learned it. By going through a myriad of experiences, enjoying abundance, suffering, loss, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, the secret of contentment isn't found in five easy steps. Contentment is not the stuff of self-help books that claim that you can have contentment in just a few simple steps. Friends, contentment is learned and it's acquired in small increments over time as the spirit of the living God works in you and through you to shape your soul into the image of Christ. It happens incrementally over time. Now, why is contentment such a hard lesson for us to learn? It's because it goes against our nature. Because of sin, our souls default to envy. We aren't grateful for what we have, and we constantly look around at other people and other things, and we develop these disproportionate appetites for the things that we want. And that's what's happening when we elevate a want to a need. Pastor Matthew Cruz in his new book, What Church Can Be, writes, that's envy, a sideways glance of the soul, a tilt of the head that says, I wish my life were like that one over there and not the one I have right here. Let me illustrate this for you. I've gotten to fly on a plane many times in my life, but I've never flown first class. So every time I board a plane, I enter the plane, and I have to walk through the first class section. And there's a dozen or so seats filled with people enjoying their pre-flight beverage. Plenty of legroom and elbow room. And then it happens. My soul glances sideways and I start to think, what's so good about that guy? He doesn't belong in first class. That should be my seat. In fact, it is my seat. And in just a few short paces, I find a low-grade sense of animosity towards someone I've never even met before. You see, envy is the foil to contentment. Cruz in his book also says that envy is an equal opportunity destroyer. See, there's no herd immunity from the virus of envy. There's no man-made vaccines. The only cure to envy, the only way to experience contentment is through the hard-fought, day-by-day, in any and every circumstance, gospel-fueled learning that comes from reminding your head, your heart, and your hands that because of Christ, you really do have all you need. It's where we learn to calibrate our soul to that truth. See, when you calibrate something, you bring it back into alignment with a standard. It's, it's deviated from that standard, and so you have to calibrate and re align it. Musical instruments go out of tune, so you have to calibrate and tune them. 
You have to make the adjustments to bring what's deviated from true back into alignment. The same goes for tools that are not square anymore. You adjust them back to square. From watches to wheels, tools to th thermometers, they don't function properly if they're out of alignment. And that's what happens day by day in the learning environment of life. Our good and loving Father exposes us to a number of different circumstances, each one carefully designed as an opportunity for us to learn the hard-fought lessons of contentment. Each one becomes a tiny, incremental aligning of our souls to the image of Christ as we learn contentment. Now, what would happen if we began each day from a place of gratitude? We began each day and said, thank you, Lord, for your abundant provision. And we listed them out, the things that we need for life, our daily needs, the fact that we have a great Savior. And then we saw as we moved throughout our day, each trying circumstance, each unfulfilled want as an opportunity for that calibration, as an opportunity to learn that hard lesson of contentment. As we learn to be a people of contentment, we will become grateful in our prosperity so that when we are in those times of abundance, we won't be prideful, we'll be grateful for what God has given us. And in moments of adversity, we'll be calm because we, we won't really believe that the things we really need are being taken from us because our greatest needs have been met in Christ. Does being grateful in prosperity, calm in adversity, does that describe you? If it doesn't, your soul is out of alignment with contentment. I know I need to set my soul to that good work. How about you? Let's be a people who learn and strive toward contentment. Now we've seen so far that contentment is independent of circumstance and it's also learned over time. Finally, Paul teaches us that contentment is grounded in Christ. Look with me at Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this verse. It's one of the most misused verses in the whole Bible. Christians will slap this on a coffee mug for daily inspiration and your morning Jesus feel goods. Christian athletes will write this all over their gear as if to say, Jesus will help me run faster and hit harder if I just repeat this verse. Remember, all good Bible interpretation takes verses in their context. Remember, Paul's writing about how he's been able to learn the hard-fought lessons of contentment in whatever circumstance. And it's in that context he writes these beautiful words. What Paul is saying is, I can do all things, namely learning contentment no matter the situation, because Jesus gives me the strength to do it. If a few minutes ago it felt overwhelming, how am I going to learn those hard lessons of contentment? This is how it happens. So Jesus doesn't mean you have a blank check from him to do whatever you want and he'll supply the necessary means. That's not what Philippians 4.13 means. D.A. Carson helpfully writes, Paul is saying, I am content for I can trust the one who invariably strengthens me to do what he assigns me. It takes the strength 
and resolution and perspective that only God can provide to live above changing difficult circumstances. But to live above the circumstances, utterly content in Christ Jesus, is to ensure that you will never give up the Christian walk. Paul is saying, as a believer, you really do have the power and strength of Christ to learn and grow in contentment. Contentment is not for the varsity Christians. It's not for well-to-do Christians. It is for every single Christian. Now, how do we know that? Because our contentment is not based on our strength, but on Christ's strength working through you. Paul's writing at a time when Stoic philosophy was really popular. The Stoics were a group of Greek philosophers and, and, and they were that, that stiff, they had that stiff up, upper lip and, and said everybody should be self-sufficient and they talked a lot about contentment. But in their view, you learn to be content by looking inward at your inner strength and your inner resolve. It was all dependent on you. And so if you weren't able to be a contented person, you must be weak. For the Stoic, you had to learn to be an island unto yourself, self-sufficient. But friends, Christian contentment is not about our self-sufficiency. It's about Christ's sufficiency given to you in buckets of grace. Contentment is a grace from God. And like every single grace, it comes through Christ. Our union with Christ, our togetherness with Christ is the means by which God's grace flows to us. Remember our definition of contentment? The inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. Contentment is not affected by circumstance because it's an inward reality as Christ works inside of us. It's this gracious work of God in our lives, and what it produces is a quiet steadfastness of rest as we trust our loving Father to provide for our every need. Now, how can Paul trust that God will provide? And more importantly, how can you trust that God will provide for you? And Paul directly addresses this reality in Romans 8, 31 to 32. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at this part. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Did you see it? When God saw our desperate need, he spared no cost even the cost of his own son, freely giving him up for us all. And if God were willing to give up his son, the greatest and most costly gift, then why wouldn't he also graciously give us every other lesser thing that we need? My brother and sister, when we believe the lie that God is withholding things from us, we are disbelieving the good news of the gospel. We are disbelieving the gracious character of God. So let me ask you this. How often have you evaluated God's love for you by what you have or don't have? 
you've looked around and seen what you have or what you don't have or if things are going your way and based on what you see around you you've judged how much god loves you how often have we evaluated god's love for us by what he's giving or withholding from us friends this is gospel irrationality paul's argument in romans 8 is the gospel that grounds our contentment in Christ. The sacrifice of Christ in our place for our sins is the guarantee that he will graciously provide for your every need until we are face to face with him in eternity. Paul David Tripp writes it like this. You don't have to wonder about God's presence or his care. You don't have to fear that he will leave you on your own. You don't have to wonder if he will be there for you in your moment of need. When you give way to these fears, you commit an act of gospel irrationality. If he gave you Jesus, he will give you along with him everything you need. Friends, the solid ground of contentment is Christ Jesus. That's why we sing on Christ the solid rock I stand, because all other ground is sinking sand. If you want to stand content, it will not be on your own self-sufficiency. It will only come on the solid rock of Christ. So friends, as we close, when we struggle with contentment, don't look to your circumstances. Contentment, Christian contentment, is irrelevant to the conversation of circumstances. And also, don't look for quick fixes. Don't believe the five easy steps towards. Gains in contentment are incremental and they are hard-fought lessons one one day at a time. And in your struggle for contentment, preach the gospel to yourself until you believe it through and through. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Christ, we really can have the power. We have the power to learn commitment, contentment. That's what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen your bride, strengthen us now in a time of rampant discontentment where our souls are experiencing so much unrest, would you graciously give us the provision we need to be content? Thank you that you were willing to die on a cross in our place for our sins, securing for us our greatest needs. Help us to trust that you will also give us everything else we need. We love you. We trust you. We're so grateful that we have the solid ground of Christ to stand on. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.